Good morning, church. My name is Derek, and I'm one of the pastors here at Third. And we are closing in on the final two weeks of our summer series. It has been called Among American Gods. And it's been an examination of the Ten Commandments. And as we've looked at them, our hope has been that as we look at the life, a covenant life of Israel, and we examine the commandments, that they would confront the American gods of our American life. Last week, David Bailey preached on uh, the 10th commandment, do not covet. And we saw how God desires us to seek the welfare of our neighbors and not their exploitation. And over these next two weeks, I'm gonna be preaching on the two texts that immediately follow the 10 commandments. This week, we're gonna look at the epilogue and examine what covenant life in the shadow of God's glory looks like for Israel. Imagine with me, August 12th, 1819, August 12th, 1819, a whaling ship set sail from Nantucket, Massachusetts on a two and a half year voyage. And they're trying to find the whaling grounds off the west coast of South America. Ship was manned by 20 men, the youngest of which was 14 years old. A little more than a year into their journey, on November 20th, 1820, 3,000 miles from Chile, the ship was struck by a sperm whale twice. The second of those impacts ripped a catastrophic hole in the bow of the ship, and it began to sink quickly. And as the ship took on water, the 20-person crew crammed themselves into three whale boats. They're about 28 feet long, about the width of the chancel. All they had with them, two rudimentary navigation tools, two sea charts, and as much food and water they were able to get onto the whale boats before the boat sank, stranded alone in the middle of the Southern Pacific Ocean. You have to imagine this, this is 200 years ago. No GPS, no satellites, no radio. 10,000 miles from their homes. 1,200 miles from the closest landfall. Limited navigation, limited resources. Many of you may know that the men that I'm describing are the men of the whale ship Essex. The Essex and its exploits became the basis and the foundation for Herman Melville's book, Moby Dick. And there is a film in 2015 about it called In the Heart of the Sea. The book is better than the movie, I can attest. These men, these 20 men in this desperate situation had really only three options in front of them. First, they could sail to the Marquesa Islands, 1,200 miles away. But the problem there is that there were rumors that cannibals lived amongst those islands. Second, they could have tried to make for Hawaii, But during this time of the year, the path that led to Hawaii was ravaged by thunderstorms. It was a horrible time for severe storms. The third, the last option, and the longest, is that they could set sail due south, 1,500 miles, to the trade winds. And those winds would and should take them the 1,200 miles to the coast of Chile. Karen Thompson Walker summarized their predicament in this way. They had to choose between their fears. To be eaten by cannibals, to be capsized 
by storms, to starve to death before reaching land. These are the fears set before these men. And this is, this is the crucial part. The fear that they chose to listen to would govern whether they would live or die. The fear that these men chose to listen to would govern whether they would live or they would die. After the Ten Commandments were given, the Israelites had to do something that no nation in history before or after has done, and that is to live life in the shadow of God's glory. And what we're gonna find today as we look at our text is that much like the men of the whale ship Essex, the fear that the Israelites chose to listen to, and by extension us, the fear that we choose to listen to, would govern whether they would live or die. The text that we're looking at today is Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 21, and Titus 2, 11. Hear the word of the Lord. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This is the word of the Lord. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is no one like you. You alone have the words of eternal life. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear your word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. What we're gonna find today as we look at this text is that living in the shadow of glory has a lot to do with fear. There are three things at least that this text asks us to consider about fear and about the fear of God in particular. The first is this, fear is powerful. I was reminded of the power of fear during uh, Mandu's staycation 2018 over the last few weeks. Um, now you need to know this, my wife is terrified of cockroaches and snakes. And so my wonderful sons got the idea that we should perhaps go onto amazon.com and buy the most lifelike cockroach and snake that we can find. You know, remote control, lifelike, realistic, and we should hide them throughout the house during staycation um, for mommy to discover lovingly. <laughs> I don't know where they got this idea from. Um, but I saw this could be really bad, so I sat, I, sat, I sat the boys down and I said, boys, this is brilliant. Daddy can get behind this idea. So we ordered a remote control lifelike cockroach. It looks just like that. I apologize for making you look at it and uh, the most lifelike snake that we could, and we hid them, uh, believe it or not, uh, in her pajama drawer. So, uh, and then, uh, because it was just this summer staycation day, we forgot about it, right? So we're watching a movie or something, and then uh, a couple hours later, a sound so terrifying erupts from upstairs in our house 
that at first we were scared ourselves. So we forgot about it so much that we scared ourselves and then we realized, oh, that was, that was, that was mom. Uh, the, the fear, fear is powerful. I do have to confess that um, uh, it's actually come to bite me uh, a, a little bit in the backside. So um, when we're not hiding it, it stays in the drawer in my bedside table. Uh, and so I'll like reach in there for my glasses or something and I'll get scared because I just grab a cockroach. It's horrible. So fear is powerful though. Fear is powerful. Why? Because it's actually hardwired into our biology. The fear response, that's what it's called. It starts in a region of your brain called the amygdala. And a threat stimulus, such as the sight of a predator, it triggers a whole series of processes that happen. Um, So first, stress hormones get released, and then your sympathetic nervous system gets activated. And before you know it, your brain is hyper alert, almost often feels like time is slowing down around you. Your pupils dilate, your breathing accelerates, heart rate, blood pressure rise. Blood flow and the stream of glucose to your skeletal muscles increases dramatically. And your non-vital organs, they start to slow down to conserve energy that you might use it for whatever threat is facing you. Fear is powerful because it's hardwired into us at a biological level. And when we think about fear, the fear of God is perhaps the most powerful form of fear. You can't fault Israel for being terrified. It's hardwired, fear, hardwired into us spiritually as well. The text tells us that hearing God speak audibly was so frightening, the Israelites thought that they would die. Now you have to think about this. There's peals of thunder, there's trumpets blaring, and then there's the voice of God that is speaking so loud and powerfully amidst that noise that you could hear it clearly. Ear shattering. It's not just what they heard that was scary. It's what they saw The manifest presence of God. Thick darkness covering the mountain. Spears of lightning. Living in the shadow of God's glory was simply too much for them. Having the object lesson of God's holiness and their sinfulness that close was overwhelming. They did not want God to speak to them. They would only listen to Moses not to God. A fear of God, it is, it is so powerful because it is rooted in the gap between God's holiness and ours. The fear of God is powerful. The second thing we learn about fear is that not just that it's powerful, but that it is purposeful. It's interesting in the text, Moses immediately wants to correct the Israelites' misunderstanding about what they're experiencing. Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you. That's actually not helpful, Moses. That scares me more. That's what I would be thinking if I was an Israelite. Do not be afraid. God's come to test you. Why? So that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. That that phrase has been so hard over the years to to, to let get in, that, that that the fear of God should be something that's with me, close to me. What Moses is saying is fear not the fear of God. Do not fear it. It's not here to strike you in terror. It's not here to create more distance between you and God. It is here to empower you to obey him. It's not something that is against you. It is something that is for you. The fear of God is for us. It's a blessing. And you see a definition of the fear of God emerge in this passage, and it's this. What is the fear of God? It's the reverent submission which results 
in obedience to the words and ways of God. That, that's what the fear of God is. It is reverent submission that results in obedience. And this is consistent with how Scripture teaches and speaks about the fear of God. It's mentioned 271 times in the Bible, the word fear, most of those referring to the fear of God, and almost all of those um, right in line with what Moses tells us here. Reverent submission that results in obedience. And when we think about it, fear can be a great motivating factor. It's a good thing. Fear is a good thing that can enable our bodies actually to do great things. Uh, one of my favorite articles about this uh, from American Scientific Journal, it's called When Fear Makes Us Superhuman. When Fear Makes Us Superhuman. And they tell the story in there about a guy named Tom Boyle. And Tom was uh, traveling after someone in front of him is driving a Camaro, uh, swerves off the side of the embankment, flips over. It's a horrible accident immediately. He pulls his truck over and the fear response takes over. And Tom finds himself sprinting after the car, sprinting down the embankment, and what he finds is that the Camaro's flipped over. Somehow the guy was, uh, flew out of the car and it's rolled over on top of him. And so what he has to do, he, he then comes up, what does he do? He goes up to the car and he, he deadlifts the Camaro up high enough for this man to roll out and then to get out to safety. Think about that. Boyle, now Boyle, let's, let's look at him in this a little bit. He's a large man, not a small, not a small man. He's about 280 pounds, six foot four. The heaviest he had ever been able to deadlift in his life was 700 pounds. The world record for human deadlifts, around 1,100 pounds. Do you know how much a stock Camaro weighs? 3,000. Even factoring leverage and other sorts of things, something extraordinary was going on that night. And, and what these scientists say, that something is the fear response. That's what was going on. When we find ourselves under that intense pressure, fear unleashes reserves of energy that normally remain completely inaccessible to us as humans. Isn't that fascinating? We, in effect, become superhuman. Uh, most of us in this room, we only use 65% of the energy capacity that we could. Now, peak human athletes in competitions, it's in the 85% range. But the only way for you as a human being to maximize your energy output is through the fear response. Isn't that, isn't that remarkable? It is, it is a blessing. And the, the fear of God, much like fear and what it does to us biologically, is a blessing to us as well. It pushes us towards obedience. Doug Stewart, uh, whose commentary in Exodus has been helpful to all of us this summer, he says it this way. He says, the fear of the consequences of disobedience is one of the most helpful dispositions a believer can have. A healthy fear of the consequences of our disobedience is one of the most helpful dispositions that a believer can have. This is why the Bible can say authentically, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the fear, fear is, is not just powerful, it is also purposeful. Now, while fear can be a blessing, it can also be a curse. We know this. It can be something that goes terribly wrong. Fear can be something that consumes us. Phobias, anxieties, trauma. Um, I almost died in a plane about, what was it, two, 14 years ago? I'll tell that story another day. It's horrible. None of you will want to fly <laughs> afterwards. 
Um, but it, re- it resulted for about 10 years, I had this uh, fear, a phobia of flying, like a John Madden level of fear of flying that I just could not physiologically, I just would panic when I was on a plane. So fear can be bad. And um, the greatest obstacle to a healthy fear of God in the Bible is something that is called the fear of man. And this is the American God that we're gonna talk about, the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says this, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Matthew 10, 28 says, do not fear those who kill the body, men, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Galatians 1.10, if I were still trying to please men, Paul says, I would no longer be a servant of Christ. The fear of man is all over scripture. And what happens in the fear of man, it, it is when we replace our reverent submission, right, which belongs to God, with a submission to others or something else. It can manifest in a lot of ways. It could be people-pleasing, peer pressure, insecurity, the other side of insecurity, which is ambition or success. It can express itself as codependency. In his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, Edward Welch has a list of questions that he finds helpful. I find them brutal, but helpful for identifying what the fear of man might look like in us to help us discover if it's operating in us. And so I'm gonna read some of these to us. I, um, I, I didn't really understand the fear of man for a long time as a follower of Jesus, mainly I think because I was a Division I wrestler, um, 6'3", 250 pounds. I've not really been scared of people for most of my life. And I thought that like, well, I'm not really scared. I'm not really, I don't think the fear of man kind of governs me. Uh, and this book completely shattered those notions when I read it <laughs> about 10 years ago. Here's some of the questions. Have you ever struggled with peer pressure? Um, yes, okay. I have. Um, are you overcommitted, unable to say no to people? Right, that just hurts. That's just not fair. That's just, um, is self-esteem your critical concern? Do you feel like you'll be exposed as an imposter if people get closer to you and really get to know you? Are you always second-guessing your decisions, wondering what other people in your life are going to think? Do you feel empty or meaningless? Do you lie, especially white lies to cover up perceptions or inadequacies about yourself? Do you find yourself drawn over and over again to jealousy of other people? Do people's responses to you or the things you care about often make you angry or depressed? Do you avoid people or social situations? Are your clothing, your beauty, your health, your possessions driven by impressing others? Good questions. Um, it's a brutal list. He has, he's had a couple of people over the years of his ministry say, uh, yeah, I made it through the list unscathed, which is ridiculous to me. I can't even imagine that. And he says, I have a, I have a question I hold in reserve for them, and it's, how do you feel about evangelism? And they all say, you got me. Okay. <laughs> like, like, I really have a fear of man. I don't think I want to do that. So he does this really great thing in this book that has been so helpful is he talks about the fear of man as hitting these three core fears. He talks about the fear of exposure. It's the fear that if someone really, if they see me, it's like a shame-based fear, right? He talks about the fear of rejection, that, that, that I will be ignored or dismissed. I will be made insignificant in the sight of others. That's a rejection fear. And the fear of physical harm, the fear that people will hurt me, it's a threat-level fear. 
And I'm just going to ask this question for you to ask before the Lord. What is the fear of man that consumes you? Is it your fear of exposure? Is it a fear of rejection? Is it a fear of physical harm? I think the whale ship Essex and their story is, is helpful for us here. So let's, uh, let's, tur- let's return to them and hear um, what happened. So after much deliberation, there are three whale boats in the middle of nowhere, terrified of cannibals, they chose to pursue not the shortest route to the closest island, but the longest route, which would take them all the way to South America, twice the distance. Two months at sea, they ran out of food far from land, and then still, a long time after that, when they were finally discovered and found, less than half of the men were alive. And most of them had turned to cannibalism in order to survive. Isn't that ironic? They became the very thing that they feared. And the fear that they chose to listen to governed whether they would live or die. And here's the craziest thing. You wanna hear the craziest thing about their story? There were no cannibals on the Marquesa Islands. The Essex story, tragic, all that suffering, could have been avoided if they had only listened to the right fear. And it could have led them to life. Same thing is true for us. As we wrestle between the fear of man and the fear of God, what fear are we going to choose to listen to, to order our life around? The fear of man or the fear of God? So so what hope is there for us Christians when for us, brothers and sisters, what, I don't have a lot of hope, uh, good news for you yet, sorry. <laughs> we'll get there soon. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because we're gonna return back to Israel's story and it's not that great. We find this, that fear itself is completely insufficient to bring you hope. I'm gonna say that again because it's very important. Fear of God is insufficient to be able to bring you hope and life and righteousness. And this leads us to the third thing that we wanna learn about fear today. It's powerful, it's purposeful, and the third thing is this, The fear of God is perfected by grace. The fear of God is perfected by grace. A fair question to ask of this text is, okay, so we did the Ten Commandments. We just read this passage. Did the fear of God keep Israel from sinning? No, it did not. Not even hardly for a moment. So what happens is Moses goes up into the thick darkness where God is. Israel recedes so far their way because they're really scared and they gather together. And over the next 12 chapters, God gives Moses many more commands and statutes. And while he's up there, pretty quickly the people turn to Aaron and say, we want a God to worship. And Aaron builds and makes them a golden calf. And do you know what they say of this thing that they just made? This is the God who delivered us from slavery. The God of our forefathers who brought us out of Egypt. Can you believe it? So Moses comes down from the mountain and that's what he finds happening. This is uh, by far one of the most depressing and depressingly accurate accounts of our life with God, is it not? How many times have I, how many times have have you said, this is gonna be the year where I read the Bible? (laughs) This is gonna be the year 
where it happens. I'm gonna read the Bible in a year, I'm gonna get it done. How many of you said, this is the year where I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop being angry? I'm gonna really, really do that thing. How many of you thought, this is the year where our marriage is gonna take our spiritual life seriously. We're gonna pray every day and there's not gonna be tension between us when we try to talk about our spiritual life. This is the year where it's gonna happen. How many of us, this is the year where I'm gonna slow down. This is gonna be the year where I do less, where I, where, I, where I follow the Sabbath. And there have been times in my Christian life where I've thought, you know, if Jesus was around me all the time, I would be a much better Christian. You know, like I, I could have maybe been a better disciple than some of the disciples. I mean, could you really do that much bad stuff if Jesus is living with you like physically all the time? Yes, you can actually. And I remember thinking, I remember when I was younger thinking, uh, if I lived like Israel lived in the shadow of glory, like with the, the mountain terrifying right there, would third church, would we, would we really turn to a golden calf? No. Yeah, we would. We absolutely would. Because we know that that's not true, that we aren't better than Israel. The problem isn't our proximity or our awareness. That's why, right? The problem isn't those two things. The problem is that apart from Christ, we are dead in our transgressions. You hear the good news, brother and sister. You cannot submit reverently enough to force yourself to obey. You cannot create obedience through the fear of God. You alone, your reverence is not enough to produce obedience. It didn't work for Israel and it won't work for you. But this is the good news. Grace accomplishes what the fear of God could not. Amen? Grace accomplishes what the fear of God could not. What does this mean? Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared. Offer salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. How does grace do this? I'm gonna reach all the way back to our Cruciform Life series, back to Easter, and I wanna talk about the J-curve. Do you remember the J-curve? In the Cruciform Life, we talked about the J-curve as, as, for those of us as Christians, the only way to resurrection is through death, right? We have our life, Death, downward bend, upward bend towards resurrection. What's the downward bend? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried. That's death. And here's what the Bible says about you, follower of Jesus. You died with him. And so if you have died with Christ, you are dead to your sin. You can't say no to something that's still alive in you. But you, you are dead to your sin because you died with Christ. And when you confess your sin, in particular, when you confess the fear of man that drives you, and you do it, every time you do that, you are choosing to listen to the right fear. It is an act, every act of confession is an act of holy remembrance, reminding us of who God is and who we are. It's a reorientation toward the fear of God and love. And here's, here's what's so beautiful about it. It is a part of the mystery of sanctification. By the power of the Spirit, you die to your sin more and more. This is how it happens. The upward bend is that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is a historical, literal reality. Jesus, the rabbi of Nazareth, executed as a criminal rose from the dead in a new, resurrected body, defeating death, 
proving he was the son of God. And you know what Romans says? Romans 8 says, he was just the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. You will do the same. And so if you are dead to sin, you are alive to God in Christ. He's not making you just into a good person. He's making us into what? New people in his new creation and sin has no power over us. This is the mystery of sanctification as we engage in the J-curve life of confession and repentance and forgiveness together, we become more like Jesus. We live in the shadow of glory, not as sinners, but as sons and daughters. Not as enemies, but as friends of God, his own beloved that he's accepted. I love the way that Bonhoeffer says it. He says this, Jesus Christ, the crucified and living one, he alone is Lord over fear. It knows him as its master. It gives way to him alone. The fear of God is perfected by grace. And in Jesus, by faith, you can have the reverent submission that you could never offer on your own. And so like Israel, church, we live in the shadow of glory. It's different. Actually, Sinai's in our hearts. Holy Spirit lives here in our hearts. We have the indwelling glory of God. But the choice actually still remains for us. It's the choice that was in front of the men of the Welsh of Essex, the choice that was in front of Israel. What fear will govern your life? Will it be the fear of God perfected by grace or the fear of man. The choice matters because whatever fear you choose to listen to, Christian, is the fear that governs whether you live a life of resurrection or not. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that um, we come to you not as enemies, not as outsiders, but as your sons and daughters. And we want to say, as children of yours, that we receive from you your discipline and your love. We ask that, um, I ask, Father, that the words of David would be true of us, that the Lord, our God, would be our salvation, that he would be the stronghold of our lives. Whom shall we fear? Of whom shall we be afraid? you, and no one else. Amen.